0: David, I'm kind of sick of the old theme music, and to be completely honest, I never really liked it. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today, we are covering a company that is absolutely synonymous with sports, ESPN. The worldwide leader. Indeed. And as they say in the very first moments of their 1979 broadcast, if you're a fan, if you're a fan, what you'll see in the next minutes, hours, and days to follow may convince you you've gone to sports heaven.
1: (laughs) Indeed. Acquired has gone to sports heaven here.
0: (laughs) It was obligatory. For long-time listeners of the show, you know that we cover, um, you know, typically one acquisition and then we talk about it and we grade it and we have a pretty standard format. This episode covers not one acquisition, but three, each one sort of fairly monumental. And I want to outline what that's going to be so that uh, the story has a little bit of structure to it. As I mentioned, the first broadcast was in 79. Uh, ESPN was acquired by ABC in 1984. Just one year later, in a surprising turn of events, the smaller Capital Cities Broadcasting Corporation incredibly bought ABC, took its name, and got ESPN along with it. And then finally, in 1996, 95, 96, there was a $19 billion buyout of ABC by the one and only Disney. And a little, little
1: teaser, the Capital Cities acquisition had a little help on the way. From a certain Oracle in Omaha that we'll get into.
0: Excited to dive into that. So as David was pointing out to me when I was sort of teeing up, uh, you know, how should we introduce this? The through line and the most important part of all of of this, you know, these acquisitions that each sort of included ESPN was ESPN itself. And so much so that by 2006, a UBS estimate was that ESPN alone was worth 40% of Disney's total value.
1: Yeah. I love the UBS estimate, man. That was like that was right before I joined UBS. so
0: Oh well, it could it. There, it definitely wasn't accurate then. Was, it, you weren't. It? Yeah, uh, you weren't not there yet, yet. yet a, a
1: David Rosenthal <laughs> estimate. <but. laughs> would have been two years later.
0: Indeed. Uh, So this episode will largely focus on ESPN uh, through the mid 90s. And the sort of digital and streaming eras are a whole nother story that that will need to tell at some point. But this era of ESPN and its sort of rise to uh, truly be the worldwide leader in sports really deserves its own episode that we're going to dive into today. Speaking of ESPN and inside baseball, yes, pun definitely intended, we did a really fun limited partner bonus show last week. We took our LPs behind the curtains of how VC firms really work from corporate structure to incentives. If you're interested or just want to support the show, you can click the link in the show notes to become a prestigious acquired LP or go to kimberlite.fm slash acquired. Um, If you're new to the show, you should check out our Slack at Acquired.fm. It is full of brilliant people that are uh, providing their hot takes on the tech news of the day, often M&A and IPO related, and uh, is also just a really great, really helpful, really friendly community. So I've really enjoyed, uh, particularly over the last month or so, we've been on break over the holidays, uh, just getting to to chat with folks in there has been really cool. And lastly, before we dive in, I want to thank the sponsors of all of season four, Perkins Cooey counsel to great companies. We have with us today Matt Kermeyer, a partner representing emerging technology companies and the investors who fund them. Matt, we talked with your colleague Lee Schindler in season two about safes. They've evolved in their usage quite a bit since then. Can you tell us about what you're seeing out there in early stage fundings?
2: I am seeing people pick up safes as I see them do with the series C documents and start to build in some abbreviated protective type provisions or some pro rata rights or you know some board seat type of, of language. And so not surprisingly, this once simplified form that people could literally download and essentially fill out by themselves if they could read and had some familiarity with legal concepts is getting lawyered and becoming slightly more comprehensive over time. I'm not sure there's a tremendous distinction between a convertible note and a safe when you look at the ultimate end goal, which is taking that money and converting it into what is commonly referred to as a priced round, where you have a sophisticated institutional investor who supposedly, and I'm making finger quotation marks, knows the market and prices things accordingly and builds in the correct market terms. Otherwise, the note and the, and the safe do the same thing. They get the money into the company's hands and ultimately convert into shares at some price relative to a future round. The fact that one bears interest and the other doesn't, really not material to most companies.
0: Thanks, Matt. Great insight. If you want to learn more about Perkins Cooey or reach out to Matt specifically, you can click the link in the show notes or in Slack. David, how are you feeling about the history and facts on this one?
1: Ben, I'm cool as the other side of the pillow. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I, I'm glad you teed
1: me up to, to say that. I'm glad I didn't know how you were going to respond.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was both awesome and so awkward. <laughs> All right, listeners, let's take it in. We start back in the 1970s. It's disco time. Things are crazy <laughs> in America. Particularly crazy in the burgeoning cable industry, which is brand new, where all the entrepreneurs in America are headed. And we start with a guy named Bill Rasmussen. Bill was a former Air Force supply officer. He ends up getting into the television business uh, first as a weatherman at an NBC station in in Western Massachusetts. But his his lifelong dream is to get into sports, and he just loves sports, he's a sports nut. So he's doing the weather in Western Massachusetts, and uh, he starts just like reading sports scores <laughs> at the end of the weather telecast, and uh, turns out people like it. He moves around to a few stations in uh, in New England, ends up kind of transitioning from weather into sports, because um, he's a natural, becomes a sports director. And then in 1974, he becomes the communications director at the Hartford Whalers hockey team. <laughs> it's real auspicious beginnings here. The Hartford Whalers at the time, their big star was Gordy Howe. And he was like larger than life. He had his own business interests. And Bill starts working for him personally as well and his family. Mm-hmm. And all is going well until Memorial Day weekend 1978 when Bill gets a call. Uh, from the Hartford Whalers that he's being fired as communications director. Mm. And then he gets another call from Gordy, from Gordy's wife, actually saying, yeah, and we're firing you <laughs> from the family as well. Ooh. Rough day, rough day. I, I couldn't verify this, but I believe his, his son, Scott Rasmussen, who uh, had dropped out of college, was pretty young in his early 20s, was also working at the Hartford Whalers,
0: also gets fired that day. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Too many eggs in one basket.
1: A lot of a lot of eggs in one basket. But, you know, they're they're pretty optimistic guys. They decide that father and son, they're going to team up, figure out what's next. So the first call they place is to a local guy. They're in uh, uh, Hartford's in... Connecticut, right? Yeah, yep. they're in Connecticut. Uh local guy in Connecticut who is an insurance agent named Ed Egan. He's working for Aetna. <laughs> you could this leads to ESPN, we promise. <laughs> um and uh, and Ed, this, this all,
0: went from like the most exciting episode ever to like the yeah, strangest, right? most boring. Yeah, strangest, episode yeah.
1: most boring episode. Ever. But we promise, there's more to come. Ed, just like Bill when he was a weatherman, he really wants to get into sports, and he's been trying to convince Bill to start a cable network mm. uh, focused on Connecticut sports. And this was when Bill was, of course, the communications director at the Whalers, and the centerpiece he thought would be showing the Whalers games on this new cable channel. Bill calls him up and he's like, hey, I just got fired. <laughs> I'm looking for something to do. What do you think? I, I like your idea.
0: I may not be as helpful anymore as yeah. I, I used to be able to.
1: And uh, But Ed is, Ed is undaunted. They chat and they decide like, okay, well, we're not going to get the whalers. But like, there's still pretty interesting. Like people care about local sports. We can show Connecticut sports. We, we probably just need some stuff to kind of fill in the gaps between Connecticut sports. There's not enough of that. So why don't we add some entertainment programming as well and then they're like oh this is perfect we've got the perfect name for this it's going to be the entertainment and sports programming company ESP like what could like it's perfect
0: (laughs) it's very descriptive it's short it's only three letters exactly you know it's just like ABC NBC ESP ESP
1: (laughs) ESP so they incorporate the company the entertainment and sports programming company on July 14th 1978 and it's worth taking a step back here I mentioned earlier that cable is kind of the, um, it's like the internet of the time, like where all the entrepreneurs are heading at this point in the late seventies. So at this point, it's less than 20% of us households have cable, the big over the air terrestrial broadcasting companies, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS, they're Mm -hmm. still what people think of when they think of television,
0: UHF, VHF over the waves.
1: Exactly. You've got the big rabbit ear antennas, you know, on top of, uh, TVs and on top of houses. And cable really got started as a delivery mechanism for houses in rural you in rural parts of the U.S. where the terrestrial broadcast signals
0: didn't reach, which so, which is amazing in its own right to think about. Gosh, we can't reach this over the airwaves, so we will run a cable. We're literally going <laughs> to run a cable there, uh, and, so, and that's more efficient. Like that, that's kind of mind blowing to me that like it's more efficient than I guess the capex of building big radio towers is, is tough. And
1: yeah, I guess so. Well, I think could be wrong, but I think this is also part of like they ran wires, cables along railroad lines, right, and. That was for Uh, telegraphs, but they might have also then used that for.
0: I know that was like Sprint's beginnings that we talked about on the Sprint T Mobile episode. episode.
1: By this time, by the late 70s, people had started to realize, huh, there's something slightly more interesting here than just rebroadcasting the big three stations. Like this, what's cool about cable is it's not regulated. So like over the air broadcasting, <laughs> that is cool. Yeah, that like <laughs> is kind of like the internet. You know, you know you can ABC, NBC, CBS. Like they're basically controlled by the government. They're not controlled by the government, but they're regulated on what they can show, what they can say. Mm-hmm. Um, but cable's the wild west. And so HBO uh, was the first kind of cable network. It got launched in 1975, a couple years earlier. And then there's this crazy guy who's going to resurface down in Atlanta named ted turner (laughs) he owns a bunch of broadcast stations and he's experimenting he's like well i'm gonna take my atlanta station and i'm just gonna rebroadcast it all around the country uh, and everybody's gonna get my atlanta see he had bought the atlanta braves baseball team Mm -hmm. we're gonna show braves games to everybody it's gonna be great so people are experimenting it's against the backdrop of all this that the Rasmussen's and egan they're digging in and they hear about this new kind of uh sustaining technology, if you will, in, in Clay Christensen terms uh, that's coming along for the cable industry called satellite transmission. And it's supposed to be this like great new thing. They don't, they have no idea what it is. They're just like, great, we're starting a new cable network. We want some of that satellite stuff. (laughs) So they find out that RCA, the big uh, electronics company, they've just launched two satellites into space for video transmission. So the Rasmussen's, they call up RCA and they're like, hey, we want some of this satellite stuff. Will you sell it to us? (laughs) RCA, they're trying to sell satellite space uh nobody's bought it yet so like oh great we got a customer great we can we can sell you that what what do you guys you know you you esp guys uh what do you what do you want to (laughs)
0: show you must be you know traditional media folks like you know about this uh we assume there would be this mad rush of all these media people that wanted to use them so you know take your deep media background and pitch us
1: yeah pitch us what are you what are you what are you gonna show and they're like connecticut sports (laughs) (laughs) and and the rca guys are like um So, you know, the thing about satellite, like what it does is it takes a video signal and it instantaneously transmits it all around the world. (laughs) Uh, So you think Connecticut sports are going to (laughs) be. And entertainment. And entertainment are going to be what people want to see all around the world. And they're like, huh. And then RCA is like, and there's this other thing, too, that, you know, with satellite, like it doesn't go down, you know, it's it's up 24 seven. So like whatever you put on this video feed is going to go out. 24-7 and this is like kind of blows their minds because at this point before satellite cable and, and satellite the broadcast networks and even most cable networks that were using satellite they signed off at like 11 o'clock eastern so like people used to this is crazy i mean this is before our time but like yeah. you know our parents generation you'd watch tv it get to be 11 o'clock and then you know nbc cbs they would be like well we're signing off for T- the night <laughs> tv was done
0: yep. tv was over for the day
1: <laughs> and then you just get like a test pattern on the screen so they're sitting in this meeting and they're like huh interesting <laughs> so how much would it cost to get a feed on one of your satellites and they're like thirty five thousand dollars a month actually thirty four thousand one hundred and sixty seven dollars a month and so they're like done we'll take it they have no money at this point (laughs) like send us the invoice (laughs) net 30 can we have like net 90 yeah how about net 180 (laughs) so they go back and they're like okay great now we got to scramble some money together we gotta uh not only pay rca uh for space on their satellite transponder but we need to set up like a whole studio to broadcast. We need to buy some satellite dishes to broadcast. Where are we going to do that and how are we going to get the money? turns out there's a town nearby called Bristol, mm-hmm. Connecticut, uh, which, that
0: which ESPN aficionados know as still the, the home of the worldwide, worldwide leader in sports. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Worldwide headquarters. The town had this big open space, a uh, bunch of acres that they were looking to lease out to, commercial business and it's just a field like a muddy field (laughs) and um but it's nearby and so they say great
0: and do you know what it was before it was a field i didn't find that what it it was a dump (laughs) espn's headquarters today are still built on an old dump on an old dump amazing
1: (laughs) the most valuable media business in the entire world
0: (laughs) yep and uh what's interesting about that is since there's no like trees that are growing there it's this big wide open thing it's actually perfect for broadcasting satellite because it's a complete clear shot exactly
1: they talk about this they they had actually first looked at another nearby town but they couldn't get enough space and it was they didn't have a clear line of sight for the satellites so obviously the dump in bristol <laughs> was the perfect spot also just like rca they lease this land they have no money <laughs> and they start a plan to build the studios and uh truck in some satellite dishes so they go out and they start, like, they hit the fundraising trail. They raise their seed round, a uh, little bit of money from other members of the Rasmussen family. And they get a, a venture capitalist in, in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, of all places, <laughs> just like right where I grew up. Silicon it's so funny. Prussia. Yeah, Silicon Prussia, <laughs> who invests, I think, the exact amount of one month of, of the RCA <laughs> uh, lease, so like $34,000. <laughs> and so like, okay, great, this will get us going for like a little bit of time. Let's hit the fundraising trail for real and go
0: get some real dollars to fund this whole thing. And interestingly, I was thinking about what their pitch must have looked like. So 20% of the US had cable at this point. So they're very much doing the same sort of philosophy and pitch that Netflix was doing when Netflix started, you know, starting this DVD-based business when no one yet had DVD players. It's like, "Oh, we're right on this inflection point. Everyone's about to have cable. Like we we got the we timed it perfectly."
1: Yep. Yep. And and indeed they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also just like Netflix in the beginning, all of the you know sources of investment dollars at this point, they're looking at these guys and they're like, "No, <laughs>
0: we're going to need some very protective provisions in yes. these documents."
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. That's anyone who's even interested for a long weeks, months. Nobody's interested. They end up getting connected somehow with the getty family in los angeles (laughs) so like you know listeners if you've been to la you've been to the getty museum which is an amazing art museum
0: uh in la uh you you might know of getty images the the stock image site which is one of the sons or nephews but of course the big behemoth and true uh sort of moneymaker and and parent of the getty empire is getty oil yeah
1: (laughs) and the family is just like nuts they're crazy stories that we won't get into here but like this is a family business in every sense <laughs> of the word. <laughs> and one of the things that they're trying to do at the time, uh this is again 1978, they're trying to as much as possible diversify out of the oil business. Uh the family's going through generational transfer, they're looking for ways to to get their money out of out of oil and diversify. And so this comes along and they're like, "Well, okay <laughs> well, why not and uh there's a guy uh Stuart evie who uh works for the family who he's really like the champion of of getting this done so they start talking to the sins about funding this and they're like pretty pretty interested the deal's taking a while though and the getty board and the senior family members they're like are these guys for real like who are these guys did and um
0: bill, esp that doesn't ESP, even have a good P, ring to it
1: yeah bill realizes he needs to prove that they have something that like is gonna, once they get the money and get all this live, that they have like really compelling content to put on to put on the channel. So he flies to Shawnee Mission, Kansas. <laughs> ben, do you know what is in Shawnee Mission, I have no Kansas? Idea, no. The headquarters of the NCAA.
0: <laughs> ah.
1: Indeed. And so in March of 1979, they're still negotiating with Getty, and Bill emerges from kansas with a deal in hand signed deal with the ncaa to air all of their championships across all sports and regular season games across 18 sports everything uh including the then super prestigious men's basketball tournament the ncaa tournament i think the year before was the magic johnson and larry bird faced off how, in the
0: how on earth like, how As I was doing research, it was it became apparent that they would have a hard time getting pro sports rights. So they're like, "Oh, Mm -hmm. we'll go with amateur." But like the NCAA at the time, it was no small thing. No,
1: it was it was like being college football was huge. Bill, you know, great entrepreneurial fashion, manages to get this contract. Uh, So he gets rights to every game that hasn't already been given to the Big Three Hmm. networks. Hmm. Um, But that turns out that that's a lot of games because even in the NCAA tournament the big three networks were only showing like the final four. So mm. all the games leading up to it, uh, they thought nobody cared about them. <laughs> Turns out they were wrong. So Bill emerges with this contract. And then immediately after that gets Getty across the line, they invest $15 million, which is going to be enough to pay RCA for a couple of years, build out the Bristol facility, get the satellite, uh, dishes, hire the first talent,
0: mm-hmm. uh, I think they now, that what they bought was 85%. Well, yeah, so, okay, this is what okay. I was going to get into.
1: They invest $15 million for 85% <laughs> of the company. So, like, listeners out there, man, you think VCs are rough today. It's a
0: tough Series A. Yeah,
1: that is a... <laughs> now, $15 million was a lot of money. So, to be fair, it was kind of like doing your seed A, B, and C rounds all at once, but still. <laughs>
0: yeah. The other interesting thing is, do you know what else happened as a part of that financing? There's a a commercial agreement as well, but not with uh, with Getty
1: uh are you referring to the beer agreement I am. yes <laughs>
0: Yeah. so uh, I, I will yeah so Anheuser bush uh, came to an agreement with esp this is still mm-hmm. before his it espn it's the largest advertising contract in cable television history yep. at 1.38 million dollars uh that they will uh be the exclusive beer advertiser on the new esp network because and there's some quote that one of the executives there had where they they say something like because we just thought you Know beer and sports just go together. <laughs> <laughs> this
1: will come back in one second on the on the day it goes live later in the fall. But uh, before they go live, after they sign this deal, I, I, I couldn't find out who kind of initiates this. But somebody, whether it's Getty or Anheuser Busch or, or somebody within ES, ESP, they're like, you know, guys. This ESP thing, (laughs) it sounds kind of corny and uh, it doesn't sound super professional.
0: And it's confusing because three-letter acronyms are, you know, broadcast broadcast channels. Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. So...
0: They started looking out and, you
1: know, other cable networks that were getting started at the time, they all called themselves networks. It was like the, you know, dot L Y, you know, domain name of the, it was, uh, which or is, labs or whatever. Yeah.
0: Which is fascinating. Cause like what, you know, we have all sorts of different definitions for network today. It doesn't quite make sense of why yeah. you would call your one sort of channel that runs across a cable, a network, I, I guess, because all the, endpoint homes were networked to over cable to the one broadcast source maybe
1: it was that they they had affiliate distribution agreements with different cable operators Mm. throughout the country that could be Mm -hmm. which we'll get into in a minute here too anyway everybody loves it they say great we're going to change the name of the company we are now the entertainment and sports programming network espn
0: the worldwide leader
1: worldwide leader
0: and actually, I think there was a brief period there where they, they changed it to ESPN-TV. It was like ESPN-TV. Yes, right. And ESPN. they were like, oh,
1: wait, n- we can't launch with that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's too much. That's too much. Let's go with ESPN. So they launch, They end up launching with ESPN. Also, before they launched, though, remember, Getty just bought way more than controlling interest in this company (laughs) 85 percent um yeah you're now an oil company subsidiary yeah exactly and uh if you know anything about you know the history of investing in startup ventures and what investors did back then you know the popular thing to do was fire the founders (laughs) and bring in professional management and getty in wanting to act like a true venture capitalist at the time that is what they did now in this case it's debatable whether they did this because they felt like they should or because it was the right thing mm-hmm. probably both the rasmusons were amazing entrepreneurs i mean getting that ncaa contract was like nobody else could have done that right. except somebody who was a true entrepreneur and at egan too but they weren't really equipped to like you know build out a media empire
0: and to illustrate that point, uh, so they got sold by these cable guys that they should spend all this money on a, a satellite transponder. And the way that they sort of orchestrated getting that all connected, apparently, and this is like ESPN, Urban Legend, um, the cable was connected to the satellite only five minutes prior to the first broadcast. <laughs> I so believe like, it. So not exactly sort of like operational experts in this industry. <laughs> I believe it. But, you know, enter- extremely enterprising entrepreneurs.
1: Extremely. So that summer, the Getty family basically forces Bill and and Scott and Ed to kind of step back from day-to-day involvement. They make Bill the chairman of the company, but it's kind of in name only. He ends up leaving fully the next year in in 1980. But they bring in this guy, Chet Simmons. And Chet was a legend. He had been president of NBC Sports uh, at Mm. NBC. And they convince him to come in and take over as president of ESPN. And he brings along with him this guy named Scotty Connell, who was his kind of number two at NBC Sports and who was Mm -hmm. responsible for all talent. And the two of them, they bring into ESPN even before launch and then in the first few months after launching, like some names you might have heard of, George Grand, uh, who depending on your age, you may or may not have heard of, Chris Berman, Mm -hmm. Dick Vitale, Mm -hmm. Bob Lee, Mm -hmm. Greg Gumbel, amazing talent into this brand new startup cable
0: network. And almost all these guys except for Dick Vitale are like 23 to 26. Yep. So like the Chris, you know, we all sort of like know of Chris Berman today, you know, you know, I think Bob Lee was 23.
1: Yeah, I think that's right.
0: Young, you know, super young hotshot broadcasting crew.
1: Yep. They, they were absolute pros at identifying and nurturing talent. Yep. So September 7th, 1979, they go live and the first show that they have, they had talked about this before launching. They, they thought, you know, we're going to have sports. They decided to drop the entertainment. You know, uh, I don't know if that was the Rasmussen's or if that was when Chet Simmons came on board. And they made this really – we're going to be 24-7 – the world's first 24 7 cable network mm-hmm. and first 24 7 sports destination
0: it's kind of amazing they kept the e even though they decided before launch they were never going to be anything B- besides sports besides
1: sports but they thought the linchpin to all of this would be they would do a half hour highlights show uh at 6 <laughs> 30 p.m kind of right in the middle of prime time every day they're gonna do this every day and they would recap the highlights and the scores of all the sporting events in the country throughout the day, duh, this, duh, yeah. duh, duh, duh. <laughs> this was like super innovative because the only way to get sports scores was if your weatherman decided to read it <laughs> on your local <laughs> local TV channel or to open up the paper in the next morning. Yeah. And even opening up the paper next morning, the paper went to print in the East Coast before the West Coast games were done. So there was no way to get scores real time. They thought this would be like kind of the linchpin to all of it, and they decided, oh yeah, it's like the center of of you know <laughs> the day, it's the Sports Center, <laughs> and so when they launched at 6:30 p.m. on September 7th, 1979, the first thing that went live was Sports Center, yep. and it was beamed uh, via satellite to 1.4 million U.S. households on day one, and the network has been going ever since. Lee Leonard and, and George Grant on for 30 minutes. On for 30 minutes followed. By, <laughs> by an incredible uh, what a lineup. fast-paced action of a slow pitch <laughs> softball game. Uh-huh. <laughs> the teams of which were the, oh, shoot, I'm, I didn't write down. It was two other beer companies that the teams were, that was their name. Oh, no way. It was not Budweiser. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> and so they got into a huge row with Anheuser-Busch, which had just the very paid them 1.4 million dollars. Oh <laughs> and then on the first broadcast.
0: I think then they had wrestling. They had some college soccer. Like it was a it was a long night following, uh, yeah, following it, Sports it was, Center. It
1: was a hodgepodge yeah shall we say
0: we will put this link in the show notes and I, we just tweeted out a link before recording this episode too with with just some sort of uh, photographs the whole thing you have to watch this like first few minutes of the first sports center broadcast to understand how different it was than the sports center you know today yeah they say like welcome to the sports center and there's like a five to ten second video clip of like zooming in on some clouds and then there's like this weird slow pan to a guy in a studio who's sitting at, at the desk and it's like you're i think it's george Grant. yeah, yeah. you're kind of like whoa you're like in an abandoned warehouse <laughs> like this is not this is weird this is and it's all terribly colored and you know it was, it was 70s television
1: and apparently there was no uh, air conditioning in the studio. <laughs> but of <laughs> and, course they have to wear suits. And of course they have to wear suits. And so people are just like sweating. And <laughs> Not to mention
0: seventy suits being so stuffy. Yeah, yeah and, polyester. Yeah. Oh, it
1: was great. It was great. So from that inauspicious beginning, um, <laughs> again, on the back of this NCAA agreement, March comes around of 1980, they start showing the tournament games and they had hired this guy, former coach, to be the announcer for most of the tournament games dick vital and it just like takes off people can't stop watching all around the country all this you know these exciting games in this single elimination tournament this great announcer gets super excited (laughs) uh calling them and people start coining i don't know who actually who if it's attributable who first coined the term People start calling this March Madness. It didn't exist before Mm. 1980 when ESPN starts showing it.
0: And this is a theme that I want to keep sort of listening for throughout the episode is is ESPN in the business of market capitalization or market creation. Mm -hmm. When I first started looking into it, I was like, wow, ESPN was like right on the crest of all these waves. Like, this is amazing. They got March Madness right as it was happening. They got, you know... No, they they
1: created March Madness. Yeah, later
0: on, we'll, we'll get into Sunday Night Football and Monday Night Football. And actually, what ESPN did was create a platform on which... Live sports entertainment could become the phenomenon that it is, rather than sitting there and capturing the the phenomenon that yep. it is.
1: Yep. I think it's worth a pause here. We've talked about this a little bit, but there were two real innovations that ESPN kind of had right off the bat. One that we alluded to is this concept of twenty four hours. Like mm-hmm. they were the first twenty four hour television network. Mm. Obviously, Ted Turner was was rebroadcasting the atlanta superstation but cnn hadn't launched yet Mm -hmm. um and like what's crazy is like the the media business you got to think back to then like it was headquartered in new york and all anybody thought about was the east coast prime time uh so again this you know the sign off at 11 p.m eastern that's eight o'clock on the west coast it (laughs)
0: probably really benefited i mean i know Bristol, Connecticut is not too far from New York, but it really probably benefited them to be sort of out in the middle of nowhere and not caught up in sort of the group think of how do you run a media company in the city?
1: I think most of the a huge portion of the cable penetration at that point was in the middle of the country and on the West Coast, Mm. uh, again, where like the whole media industry and the broadcast industry hadn't built up as much. Mm -hmm. So that was one. And then two, they were like, there were other, you know, sort of niche cable stations out there. There were lots of crazy things happening. I feel like ESPN was the first really huge niche community that got mm. built. Like, And I mean niche in terms of like a hyper focus on one thing that like lots of people are passionate about. Not niche in terms of small, small yeah. you know, because like the broadcast networks, they did everything. Like NBC Sports, you know, that was a small portion of what NBC did. Um, whereas ESPN was like just one thing and they started creating this, Community, you know, Mm. around it.
0: So it's interesting, like the notion of like the internet as infinite shelf space or Mm -hmm. as sort of infinite pages in your newspaper. Yeah. Like cable was the first time we always make fun of it. It's like, oh, there's only fifty cable stations. The internet has infinite. But like going from three to fifty was kind of, you know, you could. There were still some pretty big niches available for you to to own.
1: Yeah, totally. So on the back of this and the innovation they were driving around it, like March Madness and the like. They also got the NFL draft in April, and they made the NFL draft a thing. Like, Mm -hmm. it was never broadcast before espn and they were always trying to get into the nfl and this was the first thing that they could get was the, <laughs> the draft. nfl throws them a the bone up, like yeah, yeah you can't have our- any of our
0: uh, you know games <laughs> cert- certainly not the the super bowl but uh here, yeah, here take the draft take
1: the draft right and they made it into like you know an appointment viewing an event and the clock and everything yep. so a couple of years later they're growing like gangbusters also
0: don't forget in 83 they did have the usfl
1: that's right <laughs> that's right there were there was a period in time where there were a few. Uh, leagues competing with the NFL in the U.S. around this point.
0: Yeah, and I, I think the AFL mm-hmm. may have been a separate league and then got folded into the yeah, NFL they merged, and created the AFC was, and the But there were
1: one or two others as well. Yeah, um,
0: and I think the USFL was around for three years. The ES, ESPN got exclusive rights to it. They were like, oh, my God, this is going to be huge. Yeah. We're going to blow. And then, you know, ESPN has definitely had some, uh, for as much as they've sort of bet correctly and created waves, they definitely have also had some that, that just sort of fell apart. Well, part on. of what happened,
1: I, I think this is right. So the Chet Simmons, who had come in to replace Bill as president from NBC Sports, mm-hmm. after three years, he left and he became commissioner of the USFL. Uh, and I think that's <laughs> what kind of got that relationship uh. going. But yeah, uh, despite that, growth was great. And a few years later, they're in like 1982 at this point. They're growing. They're adding more cable operators that are carrying ESPN uh they're adding more advertisers but all this is costing money and of course they're covering more events that cost money mm-hmm. they're at a point where they're burning eight million dollars a month in 1982 uh and Getty three
0: years after they start broadcasting, three years after they start
1: yeah and Getty is financing all of these losses because mm-hmm. um, they own the business. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's not like they're out raising money because they already own the business. Right? They're getting pretty nervous, though. They they don't like this. And as we mentioned already, the family is starting to think about like, hey, we might need to exit this whole thing. Um, <laughs> We're
0: not actually sure why we did it in the first place. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, they, this whole thing and their oil business as well, uh, which will come up in a mm-hmm. sec. So in 1982, the family, the Getty family, sells a 10% stake in ESPN to abc to help offset some of these losses um <laughs>
0: and i don't, I don't like have they're any, a broadcasting company it kind of makes sense they could be helpful here yeah
1: exactly you know help professionalize this thing yeah. uh and chat who had come from from NBC had just left so they do that now that was a pretty bad move. I couldn't. I don't remember exactly how much they sold it for. It wasn't that much money.
0: And it came with the right for ABC to buy a majority share later on, kind of like the the Disney BAMTech deal that we yep. talked about earlier. And what's at uh, probably season one or something. But
1: yep, yep, um, yeah, that was back in season one. Wow. Yeah. Because right around that time, ESPN comes up with a third super critical innovation, and that is that they changed the business model for cable. So up until this point, when ESPN first started, and they were going out to all these local cable operators all throughout the country, they were having to pitch them to carry this channel in their lineup. And and for most of them... They said, yeah, great. Like, I'll carry it if you pay me. (laughs) So ESPN was actually paying uh, most of their operators to carry
0: the channel. And then you get sponsors to offset the costs that you have to pay for distribution. For distribution.
1: Right. Right. (laughs) So a couple of people at this point come in. So so Chet Simmons leaves. A new president comes in from CBS, Bill Grimes. So now ESPN has DNA from NBC, ABC, and CBS, (laughs) all in the executive ranks. And another guy starts like right out of college, a super young guy named George Bodenheimer. And he starts as hmm. a driver. Like, literally, he would drive to the Hartford airport, <laughs> pick up all the talent that's coming back from like broadcasting these games all around the country, huh. bring them into the studio in ESPN. And he kind of gets to know everybody. And he quickly moves into affiliate relationships. So now he's going out, flying around the country and talking to these cable operators. And he starts to realize, like, hey, ESPN is. Like the customers of these cable mm. operators, they love it. They can't get enough. If they didn't, why are we it, paying? Yeah, if they didn't have it, they would revolt. <laughs> what if we, what if we flip the script on these cable operators and we say, yeah, I know we've been paying you, but like now you got to pay us. And if you don't pay us, we'll pull the signal from you. Ooh. And so this happens a couple times. And
0: this has happened in a, a few sort of instrumental moments in businesses in history where they realize, wait a minute we're actually doing them more of a favor than, than, than yeah. they're doing us. And you you can actually successfully reverse the flow of money.
1: We cannot overstate how important this was to ESPN and to the entire cable network industry, mm-hmm. all the cable industry. This completely changes everything, so much so that George Bodenheimer, years later in the 90s, under Disney, after Disney acquires what ESPN would become, uh, he becomes the president of ESPN. <laughs> pretty, uh, good idea, uh, yeah, I guess. pretty good idea, Yeah, pretty good idea. Yeah so they pull the plug on a couple stations and exactly that happens all the subscribers of these cable distributors they start revolting oh. they start like picketing they start showing up at the offices like t- demanding espn back
0: all right so basically if we want to take this to business school basically what happened is the end customer developed a stronger relationship with a supplier to yep. the cable provider than the cable provider itself and exactly w- would sort of they were provider agnostic and would go wherever that supplier was and so if you're the cable networks like is there anything you could have done to prevent this... You mean the
1: cable distributors? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Is there anything you could have done to prevent this sort of disintermediation of you where you become commodity and the real value is content? And and really the question is here, You know, there's two ways to create a, a ton of value, own the linchpin of, of content or own the linchpin of distribution. Yep. And I suppose they needed to maintain a monopoly on distribution in order to uh, secure that they would be the only game in town to have access to that content. And as soon as they became commoditized and and what people viewed as unique was the content they were going to get, you know.
1: I think this was probably inevitable. I mean, the same thing played out with the internet, right? Like in the first boom of the internet, remember telecom companies were so highly valued Mm -hmm. and like ISPs and all that and they controlled distribution and blah, blah, blah. And AOL was this integrated provider. They were an ISP and content company. But, you know, fast forward to today and like Netflix, Google, you know, what Facebook, what have you are exponentially more valuable than comcast uh, you know whoever's providing the pipes yeah. uh, verizon or whomever to to the home hmm. or to for wireless so yeah this is pretty big the first big deal that espn does with a very large cable provider where the cable provider pays them was with
0: cable vision mm. the Dolans, uh, mm-hmm. the dolan family in long island who went and, on to own the cleveland indians
1: yeah and the new york knicks and many other mm-hmm. uh and madison square garden Anyway,
0: but mostly the Cleveland
1: Indians. The Cleveland Indians. <laughs> um, they do a deal where Cablevision is now going to pay ESPN ten cents per subscriber for every Cablevision subscriber, and that's the dawn of the affiliate fee mm, era. Um, beginning ESPN's real behemoth, real behemoth business, behemoth. Model. and that becomes two thirds of ESPN's revenue over time. Shortly after this, by 1983, ESPN has now become the biggest cable network in the US and not just the biggest, but you know, the only one that's like making money from the cable providers Mm -hmm. in addition to advertising in January, 1984, we'd mentioned the Getty family woes. They end up selling the whole thing, Getty oil to Texaco for $10 billion. (laughs) And Texaco of course is this huge oil conglomerate. They're not a family run business. And they like, you guys have all the, like there's all this stuff that comes with Getty oil. We got to get rid of this thing. So turns out there was a guy on Texaco's board uh, named Tom Murphy. (laughs) And uh, Tom Murphy was the president of a little company called Capital Cities. Ben, what was Capital Cities?
0: Boy, so Capital Cities, it is worth winding back the clock to understand what Capital Cities is and just what an incredible business story this is. So Capital Cities started with Tom Murphy in 1954 when he was recruited to run a struggling TV station called WTEN in Albany, New York after graduating from Harvard Business School. So Murphy was a lean operator and he was able to get the station to profitability by 1957. So just a few years after taking over, it's sort of new ownership, he's, he's new management, they, they lean it out and, and make it profitable. So he and the owner Frank Smith then decided to buy two more stations over the next couple of years in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Providence, Rhode Island, and Capital Cities Broadcasting was born. Mm.
1: So, you know, the capital of these states, like, is that
0: the? <laughs> uh, I think so. I mean, Providence, I think is Albany, definitely is. I think yeah. Raleigh is. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah. interesting think we didn't. <laughs> I was wondered where like the capital <laughs> came from. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So Murphy, of course you know, he's got responsibilities across capital cities, he needs to get out of running this Albany station. So he needs to hire someone to do that. He, he hires uh, Dan Burke, who's another HBS grad, also no broadcast experience, but, uh, you know, really clear linear thinker, trust him. I think it's an intro from one of their brothers or something like that. So hires him to, to run that station. So from this day forward, the DNA of capital cities was set. Uh, they were completely like bottom Banker. line driven, super lean. Um, and they were very decentralized. Mm-hmm. So what was important was that uh, if you, you think about sort of the um, Berkshire Hathaway style of management, mm-hmm. we're not going to have a big, you know, central staff. We trust the yeah. managers Tom to run their everybody, businesses. They're just like,
1: you guys are on the stations. Yep. We're allocating capital here. Exactly.
0: Exactly. So so Murphy and Burke um, were a fantastic duo over the next several years with Murphy, who became CEO as kind of the master strategist and the capital allocator, and Burke, who was the COO, the lean mean operator. Sort of this mm. this dream team of, uh, dream of executives. Team. So throughout the 70s and through sort of the mid 80s, they operated a super calculated strategy of expanding across local TV stations, some newspapers, and in this new cable medium, buying some cable stations all across yeah. the country.
1: Cable distributors, right? So they're... they're they're starting to buy up.
0: Yeah, the, I think that's right. Yeah,
1: it, it was distributors of the, you know, of the so They're much smaller than Cablevision, but the types of folks that, you know, ESPN as a network is then going out and doing these affiliate agreements with.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And another sort of tenet here is they only expanded within their media and publishing vertical, while others in the industry like CBS were embracing sort of an 80s era conglomerate <laughs> mentality really hard. Oh, they were man. buying minor league baseball teams. They were taking limos around town, you know. Just it,
1: wait till we get to RJR Nabisca. (laughs) (laughs)
0: capital cities their their playbook was extremely simple they would buy a station they would operate it leanly and profitably so they would get some great cash flow from it then you know with those nice cash flows and on the their ability to show those cash flows they would raise some debt capital at favorable terms then they would go buy another station then they would quickly pay down that debt that they used and then they would expand lather rinse, repeat to dozens and dozens and dozens uh, across the the u.s and You know, they weren't big on PR. They weren't like people still don't really know the name capital cities. It was Mm -hmm. kind of this like almost sleeping giant of just really well executed disciplined businessmen. They were totally obsessed with decentralization. They actually printed on their um, uh, their annual report every year. Decentralization is the cornerstone of our philosophy. Our job is to hire the best people we can give them all the responsibility and authority to perform their jobs. David, is this where where I, I can take us through uh, in January of 1986, they made one very unconventional yeah. acquisition? Well, well
1: uh, before, before we get to that, uh, so we just mentioned, you know, Texco had just bought Getty. Mm-hmm. And Tom Murphy, you know, the CEO of Capital Cities is on the Texco board. So Bill Grimes, you know, the new president of ESPN who'd come from CBS, he figures all this out. And so he's like all right you know he's worried about his job he's worried about espn what's going to happen to it as part of texaco yep um he goes to see tom and he says you know tom's based in new england just like him he says hey you should buy espn you know you're on the board of texaco like you know like they don't want this they want to get rid of it you should buy espn it's a natural fit we're the best cable network out there you own cable distributors you own all this stuff keep it decentralized do all this tom says you know that's a great idea I just can't do it right now. I'm working on something bigger.
0: (laughs) And this is a trademark Tom Murphy thing where he would know exactly what price he wanted to pay for something. He would know exactly how operationally efficient he could run it afterwards and he wouldn't pay a dollar more. Yeah. So it was one of those things where he would look at it and then it was just obvious to him. Nope. Sorry. It looks great, but no, not right now.
1: So, but he has this master plan. He's working on something bigger. To come in one sec, but he's on the board of Texaco. Texaco starts a bidding process for ESPN. They're they're divesting the company. There are two main parties who are interested in buying it. One is Ted Turner. Down in Atlanta, <laughs> uh, you know, he's. I think. I think CNN is. I think has launched at this point. So he's like, you know, the canonical cable entrepreneur. He's yeah. the. It turned
0: know, out the, it wasn't Atlanta Sports that people wanted to watch nationwide, but it was a cable news. News,
1: network. and so he sees. You know, he sees ESPN. ESPN's bigger, and and is like. And in fact, the twenty-four hour aspect of CNN was copied from ESPN. Mm. Um, and so he's like, great. I want to own ESPN. He's like putting together bids. The other interested party is ABC. ABC. They already have this 10% stake that they owned in the SPN, an option for more. So the first thing they do, they buy 5% more from Getty and Texaco. So they get up to a 15% stake. I'm not sure why they did that or how much they paid for it, but they do that. Bidding's going back and forth between them and, and Turner. Uh, and again, remember, Tom Murphy's on the board of Texaco. Somehow, ABC ends up winning <laughs> the deal. Uh, now, they probably would have anyway because they already owned 15% of the company and had the inside track. Anyway, they buy the remaining 85% that they don't own of ESPN from Texaco, Getty, and the Rasmussen still owned or their original 15%. Mm. They buy it all out. They now own 100% of ESPN.
0: Which I think is the first and last time that somebody owned 100%, 100%. of the ESPN. Yeah.
1: Well, the first time was when the Rasmussen started Rasmusens, it. Yeah. And then this is now the only moment in history where <laughs> ESPN is wholly owned by ABC. They pay $188 million for the 85 percent that they don't own
0: and remember uh, it was valued at like 18 million dollars when getty sort of first bought it and yeah. then of course put a ton of cash into it along the way hey 10x <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it it's
1: like um the 10 cent episode yeah, yeah 10x i'll hit that bid yeah <laughs> again for like the reasons that are <laughs> completely unknown and just terrible decision for some reason abc and remember tom murphy has no control over abc at this point mm-hmm. they turn around immediately and they resell 20 percent of espn <laughs> <laughs> to rjr nabisco
0: (laughs) i thought it was hearst
1: no 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 no. hearst then buys it from nabisco Nabisco. this is this is crazy this is this is nuts this is where
0: can you elaborate on the rjr part of nabisco yeah okay so so
1: (laughs) nabisco people probably at least our our u.s listeners probably know nabisco they think you know it's like cookies and crackers and it's a it's a cpg company it's like you know procter and gamble or whatever they had merged with rj reynolds what's rj reynolds sounds innocuous turns out R.J. Reynolds is a tobacco company, Camels, Winston's, Salem's. they're headquartered in Winston Salem. <laughs> all of, it's the biggest U.S. cigarette company, and at the time, cigarettes were you know a big yeah. thing, <laughs> uh, and they would become embroiled in all sorts of lawsuits. But because you know they had, uh, of course, their CPG products to sell, but mostly these cigarettes that they're trying to pump out to the U.S. They had all of these spokespeople who were professional. Athletes. Oh my God. Uh, and in particular, one of their strongest channels for advertising cigarettes was NASCAR <laughs> and uh, professional racing. And ESPN had really put NASCAR on the map. So, NASCAR hmm. was one of these kind of backwater sports that ESPN, as they were starting, like they needed content, they really kind of elevated. And so Nabisco RJR Nabisco was super interested in ESPN. Had this thought they would have this great synergistic relationship. They end up buying buying this twenty percent stake from ABC.
0: It was something like ABC did that to like free up cash. Like they yeah, wanted cash sure. for some reason.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure why they did it. I mean, it was a terrible idea <laughs> <laughs> on so many levels. So now and Tom Murphy, meanwhile, must have been just like just watching face palming (laughs) watching all of this (laughs) (laughs) because his grand plan soon gets revealed.
0: Yeah. So in January of 86, this is their, uh, you know, they made a series of very conventional small acquisitions that, you know, were in total something to write home about, but individually nothing to write home about. This is very different. So with the help of uh, some financing from from Warren Buffett, who, who uh, sort of identifies the twinkle of a soul in another, yep. in, in Tom Murphy. Very um, simpatico. <laughs> yes, yes. invests uh, both debt and equity, and Capital Cities executes a $3.5 billion purchase of ABC and all their related broadcast assets in New York, Chicago, and L.A., the Wall Street Journal runs the headline the next morning, Minnow Swallows Whale. <laughs>
1: and this is in the beginning of
0: 1985.
1: So like oh, you know, okay. months after all of this went down <laughs> with ESPN and ABC and
0: Nabisco. So why would they even need to raise the debt capital to do this? Capital Cities itself was not even worth $3.5 billion at the time. So even if they sold every single share in their company to buy ABC, they would not have been able to raise <laughs> enough money. Um, and in fact... This purchase was the largest non-oil and gas transaction in business history to this point, which is like, you know, we're watching yeah. WhatsApp get picked up for for 20 bill. Like yeah. this three and a half billion dollars, completely unheard of outside of yeah, oil and gas.
1: Completely unheard of.
0: So just to, to kind of close the loop here in capital cities. Murphy and Burke had the track record to show that they could run this same playbook and bring in you know, their, the operating margins that they were used to of over 50% with all the Capital City's properties to ABC, which was currently in the low 30s. And so indeed, they did this, they generated a ton of cash, and they were able to pay back all that debt in less than three years, which was earlier than expected. And so three years out, suddenly, like, you know capital cities is not you know under all this debt anymore mm-hmm. they they're it's looking really good and Cap- remember
1: abc again which had just acquired espn yep abc broadcasting they only made revenue from advertising they weren't getting these affiliate mm-hmm. fees from the cable operators espn now they're good to to this this the importance <laughs> that's, of, that's of the operating that's the real jewel margins. of this yeah that's the jewel like they're getting as, as we said, you know, affiliate fees become twice as big as advertising for ESPN over time. They're getting, like, it's so much a better business.
0: Yep. So, of course, Capital Cities takes the name of ABC because, you know, they own it. It's an unbelievable <laughs> brand. It was really much more of a sort of reverse acquisition for ABC. So their their culture, product, headcount, balance sheet, everything looked much more like Capital Cities than it ever did ABC, even though the company is, is sort of called ABC now. So crazy aside, before finishing this up, Dan Burke's son Steve Burke also rose to prominence through through Disney and then through the media industry. He's now in 2019 the current CEO of NBC Universal. I know, it's crazy a total dynasty. Crazy. It's worth noting. So a, a decade later, well, actually, I'll come back to this as we dip into Disney here a little
1: bit. <laughs> well. So, okay, so that transaction gets done with Capital City's minnow swallowing the whale of ABC uh, in March of 1985. Immediately, remember Nabisco, like they're trying to pump out these cigarettes. (laughs) Uh, They go see Tom Murphy and say, oh, hey, you know, you really wanted ABC, right? You didn't want this ESPN thing. Let us just buy it all out from you. We'll pay you $500 million for it. (laughs) And, And actually, that probably was really hard to turn down for... Uh, Tom and capital cities because they just you know raised all this debt to buy ABC. Right. Nabisco thinks they're going to get it, but you know Tom is smarter than that, <laughs> <laughs> and he says, "Thank you very much for your offer. I am going to turn it down." <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's pretty incredible. Nabisco is willing to pay five hundred million dollars for ESPN. I, mean, I think it was valuing it at five hundred million dollars. And what's the time frame from when this was nineteen eighty five, and it was just before in. 1984 when abc had bought it for 188 million dollars for 85 percent. wow so you know people are starting to realize the they have value here. in this thing yeah 1986 was a huge year for espn on the business side together now with a abc all under one house they get abc and espn together under under capital cities mm-hmm. they get nfl rights for the first time boom boom And this is, Ben, as you were alluding to, Sunday night football, Monday night football. Mm -hmm. Uh, It becomes huge. And not only that, the business innovation at ESPN, like we can't overstate how important it was. They've already started extracting fees from cable operators. They had to pay a ton of money to get the NFL rights. The NFL, of course, knows Mm -hmm. how, how valuable this was. Um,
0: But it was nowhere near sort of the crazy prices that it is today. That it is
1: today. But still, for for the time, I mean, it was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What does ESPN do? They go back to their cable operators and they say, hey, we just acquired these rights. (laughs) This is going to be, you know, ESPN was already super valuable. Now it's going to be astronomically valuable. But it cost us a lot of money to do this. We're actually going to, you know, the the amount that we paid for these rights, we're going to push it down to you. And we're going to increase your affiliate fees commensurately to offset... 100% of the cost that we're paying for these
0: rights. (laughs) And there's, of course, nothing that those cable affiliates can do. They can't do. And
1: and there's a whole big showdown. And again, a couple of them say, like, we're not doing that. We walk. And within weeks, their subscribers are calling them up. They're petitioning. They're canceling. (laughs) Like, they're. They really they have no
0: leverage. Um, and to give you a sense, it's it's been sort of climbing. I think originally we talked about it being ten cents. Twenty thirteen, it rises to like five bucks. I think it may have risen to somewhere in sort of the eight dollar range. Like the, it's really over time, it really grows. Yeah,
1: and on the, on the back of it, I mean, to give you a sense, that is you know by this time they are over five. The the carriage fees, the per subscriber fees that cable operators are paying ESPN is over five times. Any other channel out there, (laughs) CNN, what have you, you know, A&E, like all these other cable channels, ESPN just dwarfs all of them.
0: Yeah. ESPN is the thing people watch on cable and ESPN knows it. Yeah.
1: So, okay. Quickly back to RJR Nabisco, (laughs) our tobacco peddling friends. If you are familiar with the Warren Buffett uh, type of history, not Warren himself, but, um, you know, uh, private equity and leverage buyouts uh, you might know a little bit about the most infamous deal that the firm KKR ever did, which was in 1989. They do the largest LBO in history, leverage buyout in history. They acquire RJR Nabisco mm. for $24.5 billion. And this becomes the subject of the book Barbarians at the Gate. Classic, classic book, also got made into a movie. Um, We should note here, too, a lot of the history that we're taking for ESPN comes from a great book. Those guys have all the fun. Mm -hmm. Focus is really more on kind of the cultural history of ESPN, but it's it's just such so great. Like oral histories and interviews with everyone has a bunch of the business history, too. So Nabisco gets acquired by KKR. They take out an insane amount of debt to finance (laughs) this thing, like absolutely insane. They start selling off assets to start paying down the debt. And, uh, one of the things that they sell off is their 20% stake at Mm. this point in ESPN that they sell to the Hearst Corporation, uh, for $175 million. Ooh. Wow. Oh my gosh. Hearst got a deal. People just like, especially these, these non-media businesses that owned parts of ESPN, they just do not understand the value
0: well it shows a lot of that timing dictates so much in the price that these things get sold for it's sort of like when you buy a house and suddenly like you must get rid of your house you can't wait around for the best offer like you're now a seller not a not a um you know it's not like you're not raising right now yeah you are very (laughs) actively raising right now (laughs) that's
1: that's not a good place to be so hearst still to this day owns 20 percent of espn and have been repaid on their investment, Which could, many hundreds of times over.
0: Can we talk about that? Like we're about to get to this Disney thing, but like in everybody's head, like Disney owns ESPN. Disney owns eighty percent of ESPN. They yeah. operate ESPN, but Hearst still owns twenty percent of yeah. the freaking business. It's
1: crazy. Hearst does; they don't do anything. They're a minority shareholder. So Disney operates it. The P and L flows through to Hearst, but um, Hearst, of course, the William Randolph Hearst organization, you know, <laughs> uh, the publishing magnet. Um, subject of the movie citizen Kane there's other things within the Hearst Corporation now Conde Nast and, and that like uh, the likes of that but their 20% stake <laughs> in ESPN is all of it basically all the value there um, it's totally crazy especially and this the price of this deal like by the late 80s early 90s like ESPN is is ESPN at this point. We're talking Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann on SportsCenter, mm-hmm. Stuart Scott, like booyah, you know. Mm-hmm. You got Rich Eisen and Kenny Main and Linda Cohn. Like it is a cultural icon. Yep.
0: It's what you leave on in the living room while you're making breakfast.
1: Totally, or, or 24-7. Yep. I mean, in my house growing up, it was literally like ESPN was on all day
0: you and like 40 to 50 other million americans i know
1: it was awesome uh 1994 they hire the famed ad agency wyden kennedy that of course had always done uh nike to do the this is sports center commercials oh my god Um,
0: so good the best one ever i think is the uh lance armstrong cycling in the basement (laughs) yes (laughs) yes or lebron's uh lebron's throne yeah. years in that yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. it's like i can't it's like Stuart scott or someone walks uh, uh or lebron w- tries to walk back to his cube in uh <laughs> in bristol and he sort of looks and uh, his chair is not there and he looks in the cube next to him and i think it's like Stuart scott is sitting in a throne at his desk <laughs> and Stuart st- turns around he's like oh, oh sorry is this your chair <laughs> <laughs>
1: so so good i mean those guys like we go read those guys have all the fun uh the the book because it really gets into all this but You know, just every, the popular culture, like you can't, you cannot understate the impact of, you know, Stuart Scott and cool as the other side of the pillow and (laughs) booyah and just like, it changed everything, uh, everything. Um, so anyway, ESPN is crushing it through the early nineties. And then in the summer of 1995, our friend, Mr. Buffett makes another reappearance.
0: He does. And he, uh, he suggests to Tom Murphy that uh, he should get together with Michael Eisner, who's the CEO of Disney. This is at the Allen & Company. Yes, when they're, when they're both in Sun Valley at the <laughs> Allen & Company uh, gathering yep. of uh, media and now technology, uh, 100 millionaires and billionaires. <laughs> this is amazing kind of how fast this deal got done. And so in a matter of days, they had worked out the terms and Disney buys. And of course,
1: because Berkshire Hathaway is still a large investor in capital cities at this point.
0: Mm-hmm. Disney buys ABC, which contains Capital Cities or is Capital Cities and contains ESPN, for $19 billion, which represents 13x cash flow and 28x net income.
1: Yeah, and was at the time the third largest acquisition ever. Of course, the RJR Nabisco buyout had happened Mm -hmm. um, a few years before. That was the largest (laughs) and goes so well, but third largest deal ever. And of course, the cable network division of uh (laughs) of abc capital cities is the jewel uh at this point and of which all of that is espn
0: yeah i i think it's something like of that 19 billion i think it was something like 4 billion alone is attributable to espn it may have been it may have even
1: been more than that i mean hard to say exactly whatever it was by the kind of mid 2000s the cable network division within disney which does include, uh, you know, the Disney Channel and some other things, but ESPN is is, 90 plus percent of it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, That is driving over half, over 50% of all the operating profit for the Walt Disney Company, like theme parks, movies, you know, everything, you know, merchandise, all of it espn is over half of the profit
0: yeah and if we really want to fast forward and, and you know i think the modern era of espn is a very it's a it's a different story that we should tell in its own right but a quick snapshot so uh, there was a an analyst estimate from an investment bank in 2015 that espn alone was worth 50 billion dollars yeah
1: crazy i mean really you know it's funny we did our back in season one our disney trilogy which was great and there certainly are more um more episodes we'll have to do to add on to that in the future but this is like this is the foundation of it all like of course disney was a great company before the abc capital cities deal but like if you look at just pure value creation within disney like you know lucasfilm pixar marvel whatever they've done you know in the past like those are peanuts mm-hmm. compared to
0: espn mm-hmm One really interesting way to reflect back on this is a phenomenal book called The Outsiders, which is about unconventional CEOs who sort of uh, defied what other people were doing at the time in their industry and ran ran their business a different way. And and the first chapter is about capital cities. So super instrumental to the research for for this uh, episode had this great comment to give the rise of capital cities some context. If you had invested a dollar with Tom Murphy when he became CEO in 1966... That dollar would be worth $204 at the time he sold to Disney. That's a remarkable 19.9% IRR over the 29 years, which significantly outpaced the S&P 500 10.1%. I mean, just continuous, maniacal, ludicrous (laughs) growth.
1: Well, you see why uh, Warren Buffett uh, likes him. Yep. We're going to wrap up History and Facts on this episode here. Uh, ben, as I think you alluded to, at some point the, there is another major acquisition in the story here that happens uh, in the either in the '90s or 2000s. Mm-hmm. Want we'll to do the work um, of a company called Starwave, actually here in Seattle, yeah, like a uh, mile from where we're sitting. Yeah, which uh, becomes we're doing an in-person episode today, uh, which is awesome. That becomes the backbone of all the digital assets ESPN. of
0: ESPN.com, fantasy. What would become the apps, you know. Bill Streaming.
1: Simmons podcasting all of that yeah. that'll be a super fun one for for another day so but we won't get into that here acquisition category for this okay so which which acquisition <laughs> are we categorizing
0: i suppose it's a business line in basically every case Yeah, because there's not that much integration that really happens here in any of these things. It's not like they're integrating a product into their sales channel. They're, of course, by like ESPN just had an insane amount of talent. One of their differentiators where they were an amazing sort of magnet and talent development pipeline. But like a lot of these times where we talk about plugging in a product to improve your flywheel effects, there's that to some degree. And in fact, Disney talked about Mike Eisner at the time of this big acquisition was doing the press circuit and talking about how ESPN was a brand upon which they could could apply Disney's resources and really fuel that brand to be other things that was less successful i think yeah. than like they espn zone and all these different esp espn the magazine was fine um but like the core business is still really the yeah. the carriage fees but so, espn
1: didn't need disney to do a magazine <laughs> like right. you know right um, and
0: it's not like you know prominent espn things in the theme parks are driving a material piece of it so to me it was a amazing business line that uh with sort of the right continued management and access to capital and could kind of keep growing on its own and the business line itself just kept getting bought yeah
1: and even going back to the original getty oil investment like that's <laughs> what it was It was diversifying out of oil it was a business line like mm-hmm. they weren't going to integrate that into <laughs>
0: the oil company um and, and for folks new to the show uh we have categories for this people technology product business line asset consumption Consolidation or other, and that's yep. sort of grown over time. The way that we differentiate between product and business line is, you know, if if a product would be Facebook buying Instagram and then plugging it into their existing business, this this is sort of this is not that. This yep. is its own business. Yeah.
1: Our next section that we do is what would have happened otherwise. I was also struggling to think about this, but I actually think the to me the interesting story here is not what would have happened otherwise. It's like. what should have happened otherwise but didn't like you know (laughs) Nabisco like cigarettes like all that like there were so many things along the way like like, any other business that hadn't captured such huge waves and brought such huge innovations to the industry Mm -hmm. would have been capsized by all these machinations like getty texaco rjr nabisco like abc before mm-hmm. capital cities like the management and ownership stewardship of this company was terrible yet it survived and thrived i think just because the wave it was running was so powerful you know
0: yeah i would say often really what it was was amazing management under questionable ownership <laughs> uh, yes. unfortunately yeah. a lot of the time that ownership was minority so they could sort of continue to run the or business. at least
1: acted like minority even when they were majority, majority yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah so i think uh it's almost like it—it it really threaded the needle on managing to realize its true potential without anything disastrous happening.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, again, these huge innovations—you know, twenty-four hours, like community, mm-hmm. and like especially around sports center, and you know, um, and the affiliate fee business model. Like these are these are
0: huge innovations. Yep. Tech themes. Yeah. So my first one is a point that was made in The Outsiders. There are studies, and this kind of I think happens over and over again, that show that uh, two-thirds of acquisitions destroy value. And of course, that's why we are doing this show, because we thought it'd be fun to cover ones that managed to not and figure out how did they manage to not destroy value. Capital Cities, over and over again, was masterful at it. So I was trying to sort of tease out uh, what, what made them so good. So Murphy was able to acquire companies with confidence because the first piece is the business was already so decentralized that whenever they would acquire a company... Integration would be easier because there wasn't significant integration to do they really sort of like installed the right managers and sort of yep. trusted them to run it um, and number two was they were so efficient at growing margins in their own business and knew that sort of their their playbook could do that that they could effectively lower the acquisition price because they knew that they could accelerate payback mm-hmm. and so when they could bid higher than someone else and of course. They didn't really end up buying a lot at auctions, but when they did identify something they wanted and they, they'd go after it, they know exactly what their price could be because they knew exactly what the resulting cash flows would be five years out or at least could do pretty effective forecasting. So they were able to get conviction in acquiring these assets. So I just thought that was worth mentioning as as we really people often ask david and i like what uh so what have you guys learned from the show like what are the what are the things that make a technology acquisition successful and this is one where in this particular type of business model in this media business you know running this this combination of decentralized and lean really did allow them to uh efficiently make acquisitions that were very likely to be successful yeah yeah
1: it's been fun learning about uh, capital cities and learning from learning from you. Ben did most of the research on it. It's not a story that's oft told, you know. Uh, no. Tom Murphy is you know nobody knows Tom Murphy like everybody knows Warren Buffett, right. um, but uh, you can just learn so much from how these how these people have, have allocated capital and operated. Yep. You know, my big one, my big learning from this is uh, in a lot of ways this is obvious, but it hadn't really quite crystallized for me until this episode that like to often to get a like huge huge generation defining company which espn absolutely is like i put it in the same category as google or facebook or tencent or alibaba or whatever just wasn't an independent entity this combination of like you have to both ride a huge you know technology wave uh In this case, the technology wave was uh, cable, cable. Mm -hmm. but you also, if you can marry that with a business model innovation, like that's how you can become just so incredibly Mm -hmm. dominant, you know, in ESPN's case, like literally five X bigger than any other
0: (laughs) cable network. I think you talked about this a bunch on the LP show, like really digging into what is the appropriate and sort of the highest form of perfection of business model for a given medium Mm -hmm. and can you really exploit that new piece of technology with the appropriate business model to sort of you know flank an industry from the side instead of ever needing Mm -hmm. to attack anyone head-on
1: totally and i think about like tencent did this equally as well right like you know they ride the wave of uh pc usage and then mobile you know usage and penetration in china and they marry that to a huge business model innovation with the freemium business model yeah and uh, no one can touch them, you know, <laughs> uh, except maybe bite dance. <laughs> That's my big one.
0: Well, I had uh, just to revisit one that we mentioned earlier. I think it is interesting reflecting back on what activities did ESPN for, uh, perform that were sort of market capitalizing, effectively wave riding, and mm, what ones mm-hmm. did they do that were market creating. I think they mostly are in the business of market creation. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're. Uh, You know, this even continued after, like far after uh, where this episode ends, sort of with with fantasy football being Mm -hmm. the driver of why people like the NFL. I think ESPN has actually done a lot of work in creating why the NFL is a platform for american yeah. social activity and i i think
1: uh just like they did with march madness and nascar and yep so many others
0: yep yeah they're it's it, you can almost think of them as a platform company in the way that sort of microsoft created a platform on which other people could make more money than microsoft itself made in total i think that's probably the case with with espn too they were just a sort of an unlock for creating a ton of value in the ecosystem yeah totally um, and then lastly, it's interesting to just reflect on uh, the media industry and sort of there's content and there's distribution. And ESPN has always been content. And reflecting back on the Kara Swisher episode, many people have tried throughout the years, including AOL to uh, uh, with AOL Time Warner, to... Achieve the the dream of marrying content with distribution, mm-hmm. um, and we're kind of seeing Disney do that now in a new era where they're trying to you know pull this is a again a foreshadow but pull off of Netflix and pull off all these streaming services and introduce Disney Plus. Um, and I think it's it's interesting to just look at this this acquisition in the context of that eventual dream of of marrying both together. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that it, it kind of incredible that ESPN was able to spend the money to produce the content. But then make the money from getting other people to distribute it for them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Talk about differentiated content.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, another thing we haven't talked about here that um, probably wasn't as important in the time period of history where we're focusing on ESPN here, but it's critical now is the live component, especially as, you know, everything has transitioned over the last few years to streaming and whatnot. Like, what is the most only really remaining defensible piece of traditional television type programming it's live. And what is the most live compelling live programming? It's sports. sports. Yep.
0: Yep. You want to grade it?
1: Let's do it. What, are we, what so are we grading?
0: I think we should grade the Disney acquisition of capital cities, but it's worth talking about the others too. So the, I think the Disney yep. acquisition of capital cities was an A or an a plus or something and we can talk about that the capital cities acquisition of abc is whatever whatever we decide for disney is the same thing for capital cities acquiring abc because really like it's was it a good idea long term to own espn for a much more nominal price than the super high value that it's worth today was yes
1: in both cases the abc acquisition of espn that's just like (laughs) no no doubt a plus (laughs) right right Uh, whatever enterprise value of 200 and some odd million that they paid for (laughs) it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then the only people that I suppose it may not be an a plus four or an a four or whatever is, uh, is Getty when they sort of Mm -hmm. acquired it from the Rasmussen's. Hey, 10 X. It was a 10 (laughs) X. They did have to pour a lot of money into it over time. Uh, so
1: Getty, I think the, yeah, the, it's almost like you can, you can bucket out the winners and losers here or like the, the winners, the big winners and the not so big winners getty in the not so big winner texaco for sure they were like barely even played at the table yep. uh nabisco <laughs> loser hearst hearst might be the biggest winner of all they didn't have to do anything <laughs> <laughs> uh paid 175 million for 20 percent of the company
0: i wonder if hearst's market cap are they publicly they're traded? not a public company if they were a yeah. public company i wonder if their market cap would be lower than their sh- share yeah of you ESPN. have like a aspers situation, situation with tencent yeah, yeah. It's like discounted because you can't get it liquid yeah
1: yeah I, i'm sure it would be but yeah hearst is still a uh, private family-owned company
0: is espn too expensive now with not enough perceived headroom for where it could grow for uh anyone to want to buy it from hearst
1: could be yeah why
0: wouldn't disney but it it doesn't
1: matter right like they've been getting cash flow distributions for decades Decades. you know (laughs) yeah but that is a good question like would anybody want to buy that from hearst right now i don't know yeah Um, all right
0: all right where are you on uh disney acquiring abc slash capital cities containing espn
1: well i mean no doubt it's an a right like uh even without the exact numbers at my fingertips, if half of your operating income as an entire company is coming from ESPN, you know, uh, within a decade of the acquisition, no matter what you paid for it, and, and the 19 billion, I forget what Disney's market cap was at the time, um, whatever it was. Anyway, I would say with plenty of fudge factor based on what these numbers were that we don't have at our fingertips, I, I'm fairly confident it was an A.
0: Yeah. It is worth noting the contrast to like, uh our, our sort of two biggest a pluses of all time or maybe three are next reverse acquiring apple yep. uh
1: facebook acquiring facebook instagram facebook acquiring
0: instagram and uh booking uh priceline acquiring booking priceline acquiring booking yep and this is different than next in that it was not company saving like disney w- would w- have been fine yeah. right
1: but nowhere near what they are
0: right So, you know, if we're, like, reserving the pluses for company saving or something, it wasn't that. Yeah,
1: I agree. I'm I'm not a plus. I'm I'm an A. It's an A. Because they still paid $19 billion for it. (laughs) Like, you know, it's not like...
0: Right, I mean, yeah, yeah.
1: It's not like they, uh, you know, invested uh, uh, when... uh, This isn't, like, Tencent here. (laughs) Right,
0: and let's even say half. So in 95, they paid, call it $10 billion-ish for ESPN, just kind of as a conservative thing And today or in... I won't say peak in the late two thousands. It was fifty billion. Like it's a five x over a decade. It's great,
1: and it's but that's that's value. They also have been getting tons of cash flow from it over those years. Yeah. So,
0: um, uh, yeah, I think I'm definitely today owning ESPN today, yeah, for sure,
1: for sure. Now, when we talk about Star Wave and ESPN going forward, next story. time, uh, we can't promise it will be actually next time, but at some point in the future, on acquired, yeah, should do it. All carve
0: right. outs, carve outs. I have an inc- incredibly appropriate one. So there is a very cool podcast uh, that has been started by the folks at GeekWire, um, in addition to their their regular podcast uh, called Numbers Geek. And uh, Todd Bishop, the co-founder of GeekWire. Uh, Friend of
1: the show, Todd Bishop.
0: Indeed. And, and uh, you know, a special guest on the Push Pops exactly. Push Pop Press episode. Boy, that was early on. His co-host, or, or maybe his featured guest every time, is Steve Ballmer, and uh, Steve uh, Steve Ballmer, of course, the former CEO of Microsoft, owner of the LA Clippers. Now, the, uh, the he's used sort of his his private family wealth to uh, release USA Facts. So, really yep. diving into making it easy to understand sort of um, the important numbers about the, the U.S. both in government spending, but across a lot of important issues. So. They do this great podcast called Numbers Geek. The most recent episode was fascinating. It was called the Basketball Box Score Mystery. Todd presented Steve with a uh, stat sheet, very, very detailed stat sheet from a basketball game, a famous basketball game, and obfuscated the names of all the players and the names of the teams. And he said, Steve... Analyze this and give me your best guess at what two teams were playing, what this game was, and who each of these players were on the stat lines. And it's really fun because, uh, you know, Balmer such a, uh, a basketball geek and has been for a long time, long before buying the Clippers, to sort of have him sort of uh, try and analyze and and understand everything from, oh, I bet this player was injured and this other player was taking some of his minutes because he was injured. I think this might have been a playoff game. So it's a really cool, and Mm, as as I was thinking through this episode, you know, just a great tie-in with ESPN. Mm. Uh, My Carve
1: Out, uh, I'm going to have to listen to that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's cool. Um, My Carve Out is uh, also near and dear to the show and, and our community's heart, is a great, great long piece the fast company just released on softbank and masa and his ambitions and where the vision fund and softbank and we work and everything goes from here by uh, katrina brooker and championed by editor and huge supporter of acquire david lidsky so thank you yeah. so much for all your support um, yeah, yeah
0: david is uh, i mentioned the slack earlier david is like a awesome awesome member in the slack so uh, great
1: uh and this piece is is really really good i i wish it uh i wish it had been out when we did our episode on the vision fund um but so the, my favorite moment is this image of when SoftBank uh, corporate acquired Arm, uh, which we'll have to do an episode on someday. Oh, yeah. And the deal getting done in the Turkish Mediterranean in an empty restaurant that Masa had bought out and then like helicoptered in all the principals from Arm. <laughs> <our, like, laughs> amazing. Why not? Amazing. So.
0: It's Awesome. Well, folks, thanks as always for going on this journey with us. If you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. If you uh, like the show and and want to dive deeper with us as a limited partner, you should join the club. uh, uh, You can click the link in the show notes and get access to a special deeper episode in between every episode that we release uh, on the main show. Um, Or you can go to kimberlite.fm slash acquired. We'll see you next time. We will.